If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along with the Pew Bibles. That can be found on page 956. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. That's John chapter 13. It will be beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 17. Last week, Pastor Joshua came out hot against reality TV shows. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Quite incisively, he described them, most of them, as windows into worldly wisdom. People are not just competing, they are conniving. Shows tend to be sensual and crude and deceitful. On top of that, we can just add most of them are bad TV. Folks went home, deleted their watch history. I can think of at least one exception. I need there to be one exception. Undercover Boss. Just classic 2010s feel-good reality TV. It's cheesy in all the best ways. Easy concept to grasp if you've never seen an episode. A high-ranking or position executive in the company goes undercover for a week, disguised as an entry-level employee to learn more about their work culture, their uh, work conditions, their employees. It allows employers to sympathize with their workforce, to improve processes, to reward their best, and sometimes to fire their most incompetent. Now, the best bosses, you know, if you've seen the show, they model what they expect from their employees. They teach them and they empower them to do what it is that they're asking of them. In the end, of course, the undercover boss reveals themselves to those that they worked alongside. And the best episodes have all the feels. There's drama, right? The rude, reckless, lazy, disrespectful, thieving employee is fired. There's inspiration. The formerly imprisoned, nearly homeless, currently working as hard as they can to provide for their kids. Employee is promoted. They're given a bonus. Their debts are paid off. Their chemo treatment is covered. It's got it all. Things turn out in the end as you expect them to. The boss resumes his position of authority. The episode ends and you feel good. Now imagine an episode of Undercover Boss where none of the employees understand what they're doing. They're all lazy, undisciplined. They argue openly with the boss. Even still, they're all arguing about who should get promoted. They all owe him money. And in fact, one is planning to kill him. It's like undercover boss gang edition. At the end of the episode, you expect to hear, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're going to prison. And then the boss does something unexpected. He condescends further still. He clears the debts of his employees. He promotes them in love. He instructs them to do likewise, and he even is punished for their crimes. You see the story, our condescension, teaching, exaltation, judgment. This is the gospel according to John. Further than any human boss could fall. The Son of God condescends from heaven to earth, from Lord to slave, now both God and man. He cleanses his enemies to make them his own, and his cleansing power is such that they can actually do what he expects of them because he makes them like himself. John gives us ultimate reality. In the gospel, we are meted with we are met with unexpected kindness, with undeserved grace, with unparalleled love, condescension, instruction, more condescension. As salvation comes by means of his own judgment and finally exaltation, this is the gospel according to John. God became one of us to heal us and teach us. The Son of God took our sins upon himself to make us clean. This is the gospel according to John. If you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of Holy Scripture. 
John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Again, these are the very words of God. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going to. And began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize, but afterwards you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except for his feet because or but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, if you grasp this one sentence, you grasp, I think, the meaning of the text and the point of this sermon. Jesus humbled himself to save his people, and he expects his people to humble themselves to serve one another. Jesus humbled himself to save his people, and he expects his people to humble themselves to serve one another. Jesus' incarnation and cross work are the great act of loving service. It is intended to multiply into many acts of service. There's this movement in the text where Christ acts upon you, and he expects us then to act upon others in turn. You see, when the humble love of Christ comes upon you, it compels you to do likewise. In fact, it can't not. His love leads to our love. His humility leads to our humility. His cleansing sacrifice leads to our cleansing service. It has to happen, and the order can't be reversed. And Jesus humbled himself to save his people, and he expects his people to humble themselves to serve one another. We'll split the text in half and consider two commands. First, in humility, be saved by Jesus. And second, in humility, serve like Jesus. In humility, be saved by Jesus, and in humility, serve like Jesus. Be saved by Jesus and serve like Jesus. First, in humility, be saved by Jesus. We'll spend most of our point on most of our time on this first point because it's really at the core of the second point or the second half of the text. In fact, as we'll see. The second half of the text, or our second point, is really just an application of what Jesus is doing in the first. John chapter 13. We're at a major transition point in the book of John as we are moving or have moved from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry. If we were watching a show, this would be like the first episode back from a mid-season finale. In fact, the next five chapters, commonly called the Farewell Discourse, it's just Jesus and his disciples. First 12, of course, and then 11. You could think of this shift in Jesus' ministry as the movement from proclamation to preparation. 
Jesus is moving from proclaiming the good news about himself to the world to now preparing his disciples for his death and to Jesus' love for his people in the world. That is the beating heartbeat of the next seven chapters. It is the love of Jesus for his people. And all of these chapters, the Pharaoh discourse and the crucifixion, so the next seven chapters, they all happen in one 24-hour period, Passover. It's like time has slowed down. Now, I'll say something quickly about the timeline because it helps us grasp the events. It's also debated. I take the traditional understanding or reading of this text, which is to say that this meal in John 13 is the Passover meal. It is the final or last supper. Jewish days followed a lunar schedule. So unlike ours that go from midnight to midnight, theirs went from sunset to sunset. So think 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So Thursday at 5 p.m. is one day. Thursday at 6 p.m. begins a different day. And here, Thursday at 6 p.m. begins Passover. Thursday of this year, between 3 and 5 p.m., that's when the lambs were slaughtered in Israel. Thursday evening, again at 6 p.m., this is the beginning of Passover. This is when Jesus and his disciples are eating. This evening is when Judas betrays him. Thursday and Friday would be when he's tried. Friday, of course, is when he's crucified. All of this takes place on, for them, the same day, which is Passover. This is the most natural way to read John alongside the synoptics. The difficulty comes of verse 1, before the Passover festival. I think we're to take that as John's commentary about Jesus' knowledge and mindset as he's heading into the Passover festival. As he's heading into the meal and that day. In fact, verse 1 serves really as a summary statement about Jesus' entire ministry. Heading into Passover, verse 1, Jesus knew that his end. In fact, what Jesus is about to do in washing the feet of his disciples is to give us a demonstration, an appetizer of the fullness of his self-abasing love that he displays on the cross as he dies for sinners. But John here, he's still setting the stage for us. Verse 2, now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent foretold in Genesis 3 is about to come to a head. The death of Jesus is the devil's play to destroy the people of God. The death of Jesus is God's play to destroy the devil. Spoiler, the one who walks out of the grave is the one who wins. Judas is merely the tool of the devil's destruction. At this point, Satan has merely given him an idea. He's not making him do anything, but he's given him an idea that he likes. A bit like pointing out a sucker to a kid and telling them to eat it. Judas likes the idea. Brothers and sisters, Satan works by deceiving us, by telling our flesh what it likes to hear. Now, at this point, a plan has already been set in motion. Strangely enough, you'll recall it was one chapter ago when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus at Bethany. It was then the gospel writer Matthew tells us, Matthew 26, that following that, Judas conspired with the religious leaders to kill Jesus. Ironically, it's here, not as Jesus' feet are being washed, but as he himself is doing the washing that Judas has had enough. He acts on the plan that he has helped to connive. So big picture, we're at Passover. Jesus, we know, is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, we know, must die for the salvation of his people. Judas, we know, has already put a plan in place to kill his rabbi and friend. And verse 1, Jesus knows all of this too. Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Nothing is going to happen to Jesus on this evening apart from his permission and will. He will not be surprised by any of it. He can't be put to death apart from his own power. 
And far from being a failure, Christ's death is the means by which he reveals himself as Israel's God and King. It's the means by which he deals with our sin and enemy. And the death of Christ, as we see in verse 1, for Jesus and for all the people of God is simply passage from this world to the Father. The paradox in John is that Jesus' final descent is actually the beginning of his ascent to God. Jesus walks into that room and dinner with anchored knowledge and hope. He walks in with confidence. But why does he do it? Verse 1, John's summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Ahead of Christ's next 24 hours lie the treachery of Judas, the thrice betrayal of Peter, a corrupt trial by the Jews, an unjust sentence by the Romans, the anxiety of facing the Father's wrath, the weight of the world's sins placed upon his shoulders. If we were walking into the upper room, it would be to hide and to vomit. Jesus' face is set for the cross. Why? Because he loved us. Love is the cord that bounds his heart from heaven to the cradle to the cross. Without flinching, Though his people would fail and betray him, he loved them to the end. He marches to the cross, not with begrudging obligation, but passionate, self-denying joy set before him, love, and that is love for you, MBC. He knows what's coming, but he does it. Why? Because he loves you. I don't know what you were hoping to get out of this morning at church, but Jesus wants to show you in this text just how much he loves you. John knows for us to grasp the demonstration of his love, the one we read about, the foot washing, we need to understand who Jesus is. This is why John really starts the second half of his book with a mini prologue. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knows that he's the king, the judge, the sovereign. Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Who is Jesus? He's not merely a man from Nazareth, though of course he is. We confess in the Nicene Creed that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. But that's like one half or less than one half of the story. And honestly, the less interesting part. As we've seen so clearly in the book of John, Jesus is not just man but God. Again, as Nicaea so faithfully summarizes, Jesus is God from God, light from light. True God from true God, but God not made consubstantial with the Father. Who is Jesus? By the power of his word, he created all things. Who is Jesus? By that same power, he holds all things together. Who is Jesus? By that same power, he will one day raise the dead and judge them. Who is Jesus at his feet right now? The elders in heaven are casting their crowns and prostrating themselves. Who is Jesus? Before him the seraphim cover their eyes and feet, lest they be consumed by his holiness. Who is Jesus? It was him Isaiah saw seated upon the throne on high in glory. Jesus knows who he is. Knowing he's God from God, that he's come from God and that everything has been put into his hands. Knowing all of this, he does what? Not what you'd expect. Not what you would do. Knowing who he is and where he's going, verse 4, so. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, 
took a towel and tied it around himself. And next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Don't miss the picture that John is intending to give us. A summary of the ministry of Christ in visual form. God who is seated on high has descended to earth, has veiled his glory, has set aside divine prerogative, has wrapped himself in humanity to cleanse us from our sins as though we were the slaves and not him. For God to become man is an act of condescension that we cannot possibly fathom because the us He transcends our plane of reality, and yet he becomes man. But becoming man is just one stop in the sun's descent. Foot washing even is simply one stop on his way down to death. Paul puts it so clearly for us in what is called the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. There Paul writes, speaking of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God condescends by becoming man. He stoops lower still by becoming a slave. He goes even further than that by washing the feet of his people. He stoops as low as he can go by dying in the place of sinners on the cross. The one descending from the dinner table to don the slave's towel is the one who did so from heaven. In humility, he became man. In humility, he washed our feet. Now, why is foot washing so humbling? We saw this in chapter 12. As you can imagine, feet in first century Jerusalem were filthy. Not only caked with mud and dirt, but often because they don't have modern uh, sewage systems like ours, they were often caked in animal and human waste. Most Jews believed that it was too degrading for the average person to do. It was a task reserved for slaves. And not for any slaves, but for them in their culture, those who were the lowest of society. Female, Gentile slaves. There was not a task more debasing or humiliating. They reserved it for their lowest. Jesus breaks all customs here. First, feet were typically washed upon entry into the home, and for obvious reasons, Jesus waits until the meal, the Passover meal, the meal that would be transformed into the new covenant sacrament to show forth Christ's body that's been broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And second, nobody, and I mean nobody in Christ's position ever washed feet. There is not one historical record account of a king or noble, let alone rabbi, washing the feet of their subjects and students. Jesus is not merely the king of Israel. He removes his robe so that he's dressed like a slave, kneels before his students, his servants, his messengers, his creatures, his rebels, even before his betrayer Judas. And washes his feet. Did you think about that this week as you read the text? That Jesus washed Judas' feet. I promise you he did so without anger or malice in his heart. It was for Judas another opportunity for repentance. As Jesus displayed his mercy toward him. Never have more treacherous feet been handled with such compassion and care. With a single word, Christ could have crushed him under the weight of divine fury 
Instead, he washed his feet, knowing that soon he would act to shed his blood. How do you think Jesus feels about you, his brothers and sisters? Again, make no mistake about who this Jesus is. Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2, the one who humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and dying in the stead of ruined sinners. Paul writes there in Philippians chapter 2, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day we will not be able to cry his praises loud enough. We will not be able to get low enough. It would be the highest honor in our lives to wash his feet. And yet here the high king of heaven gets lower than us. As Augustine put it, although he knew that he came from God and was returning to God, he fulfilled the office not of Lord God, but of human slave. He, your God, became a man and acted not just like a slave, but your slave. Brothers and sisters, is there any question about his love for you? Is there any doubt that he cares for you? Is there any chance that he would not be willing to do whatever it took to meet your needs? Do you think he's surprised by your sin? Do you think he's repulsed by your presence? Do you think he recoils at your voice when you go to him confessing what you've done? We would do well to dispel any notion that Jesus is the kind of God and king who steps on his people to get what he wants. No, he is the kind of God and king who humbled himself before our feet. We could spend a lifetime reflecting on this single act. He who measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, Isaiah 40, he's the one who poured water into a basin. He who wraps himself in light as a garment, Psalm 104, removed his robe and dressed like a slave. He whose train fills the temple, Isaiah 6, he donned a towel to dry our feet. Further still, he who is without beginning or end was born. He who was without sin was punished. He who cannot die gave up his spirit. Why? For us and for our salvation. But why did he do it? Verse 1, he loves us. He loved us to the end. He loved us beyond the end. He ever lives now. He ever lives now as your high priest to intercede on your behalf in heaven. He loves you. Do you believe it? Now, Jesus' radical, countercultural act of humility, it's not lost on Peter. We see in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Now, on the one hand, I think we can understand Peter's reaction. What Jesus is doing is so shameful that Peter is embarrassed for him. It's like when you're a kid and your mom is fixing your hair in public. Now imagine her washing your feet at the cafeteria during lunch. Now imagine it's God become man. What Peter does looks like humility, and yet brothers and sisters were never in position to tell Jesus what he can and can't do with our bodies or lives. Disobedience is never humble. Sometimes disobedience looks like Humility in a certain cultural context. In ours, it might look like, well, I don't share the gospel with people because I don't want to force my beliefs on them. Like, who am I to say that these people can't be together or that it's wrong? 
Or I don't think we should hold too tight a grip on this thing that scripture has spoken so clearly about. We respond, wow, they're so humble. Are they? Correcting or editing or redacting Christ is never the fruit of humility. Even though Jesus is acting as slave, he's still the Lord, verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If Jesus doesn't wash you, you have no part with him. Six people live in our home. Six. That's six people plus one dog. We have four young kids, seven and under. That is a lot of laundry. I mean a lot of laundry. A lot of really dirty laundry. Like, I'm going to eat spaghetti off my dress and use this shirt as a canvas for mud art. And that's just Jessica. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's the kids. Now, without fail at any given moment, Jess is working to remove some kind of stain from some article of clothing. I've tried. I promise. I have tried. Like, there's this little raspberry spot. I try to get out, and the whole dress is pink. Jess is like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. Someone spilled Kool-Aid on it. No. Now, depending on the severity and the size of the stain, she's able to remove all of it, most of it, sometimes none of it, or not enough. Pavy, our five-year-old daughter, she has this dearly loved, this dearly loved Pikachu shirt that appears to be beyond saving. She's finding this out right now. It's a yellow shirt, at least when we bought it. Now it's covered in all these like mysterious black spots, like she was changing somebody's oil the other day. <laughs> Jess has tried and tried and tried to no avail. We can't get it out. We have no reason to keep it. You could think of sin as a kind of moral and spiritual stain on your human nature. Only it's not like one splash of grease or one drop of coffee. Your soul was made to be the purest pure, the whitest of white, but because of sin, it is the blackest of black. Where there should be life, there is death. Where there should be purity, there is corruption. And friends, no matter how hard you scrub with good works and charitable giving and helping your neighbor and even attending church, your soul is not getting any cleaner. In fact, you're making it worse. Trying to justify yourself before God, trying to atone for your wrongs, trying to be perfect before him, it's a bit like trying to remove stain with coffee and oil and ketchup and feces. It's not only futile, it's offensive. Jesus is telling Peter and us, unless I wash you, you can't be with me. That is, you need to be washed and I'm the only one who can do it. Non-Christian friend, this is actually the good news of the gospel. What you couldn't do for yourself, Jesus Christ has done for you. He lived perfectly on our behalf. He had died then even though he's perfect. He died in the place of us and for our sins. And now he offers you the forgiveness of sins and newness of life simply as a gift. We would encourage you to stay afterwards today and talk with us about the gospel. Jesus is offering it to you today as a gift. If you don't allow Jesus to clean you, you can't have Jesus. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or not at all. We can either be cleansed by him or not at all. Now, Peter, our boy, he's all or nothing. He's not afraid of telling Jesus what to do. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Okay, now Jesus is about to, this is important for us as we understand it, he's about to change the way that he uses the cleansing metaphor, I think. He was just modeling for us what he's going to accomplish on the cross as he completely forgives us of our sins, as he gives us new hearts, as he makes us new. That's a one-time act that Jesus does in cleansing us. He's about to change the way that he's using the metaphor. This is verse 10. Jesus says, one who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. The other morning, I 
took a shower, and then I took our puppy outside, Knox, to do his business. I bagged his poop, I threw it away, I went inside, and I didn't take a shower. I simply washed my hands, why? I'm already clean, okay? If you're bathed, you only need to wash your feet when they get dirty. Why? Look at verse 10 again. You're already completely clean. You are clean. As hard as this is for us to grasp, Jesus has cleaned you. If you trust in Jesus, this means he paid for your sins upon the cross. This means God's justice has been completely satisfied. Already risen from death to life. This means you are a new creation. This means you are clean and cannot be stained in the same way ever again. Period. This is the gospel. If you are in Christ, you are already clean. You cannot go from forgiven to guilty. From living to dead. You cannot go from completely clean to now being dirty. Why? Because you have been wrapped up in Jesus Christ himself and he is free of stain. How is this possible? Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't simply wipe our feet with water or tears but cleansed our souls with his own blood. As we sang, sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. If you are in Christ, you have lost all your guilty stains. Not some of them, not part of most of them, but all of them. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, you are clean. You might be thinking, but Pastor John, you don't know what I did in college. You don't know about the sin that I've struggled with for years. You don't know what I did last night. Jesus does. He knows what you will do, and he took it all to the cross. He loved you to the end. The record that we plead before the Father is not our own, but Christ's. The garments that we will wear in glory are stained not with sin, but the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, it has not and will not lose its power here or ever. If you trust in Jesus, you are clean. In the eyes of God, you are as righteous as Christ, who is as righteous as God. He who stoops so low for you is not keeping a record of your wrongs in heaven. They were already dealt with on earth. You're clean. Do you believe it? Jesus has washed you with his blood. And yet the point that Jesus is making here is that the Christian still has need to wash their feet. Meaning as we walk in this world, we continue to sin and we have need for Christ's forgiveness, need for reconciliation even, for his renewing effects. In fact, John, our gospel writer, put it this way in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and clean, but don't assume that your fight against sin is over. It's not. Jesus assumes that our desire is to be clean and that our feet will continue to get dirty. This is why we confess our sin publicly at every Lord's Day gathering. Brothers and sisters, are you regularly confessing your sin to God and to other brothers and sisters in the church so that you might experience his saving and renewing effects every single day? There is no better way to be mastered by sin than to keep it secret. We daily need the renewing effects of Christ's work and we are cleansed by him as we repent and believe, as we sit under the means of grace, especially at the gathering. Jesus is commanding us to be cleansed, cleansed by him once for all and also daily as we go to him in repentance and faith. And so 
In the first half, we see that Jesus is one-time act to pay for sins. Of course, it's unique to him. But the humility that characterized his act is supposed to characterize the new covenant people. His one humble act of sacrifice is to multiply unto many acts of humble service. We come to our second point now. In humility, serve like Jesus. In humility, serve like Jesus. Starting in verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus uses four hierarchical relationships to help us grasp why we need to be about the same kind of humble service. Teacher, student, Lord, subject, master, servant, sender, messenger. Okay, it's intuitive enough to grasp. If Jesus is your teacher, your rabbi, then that means by definition you aspire to follow him, to know and to believe his teaching and to do what he does. If Jesus is your Lord and your master, then his commands are not things to be considered. They are commands. If Jesus is the sender and you are the messenger, then what you say and how you deliver it matters to him. And he's giving us the model. In every one of these relationships, there is one who's teaching and commanding and modeling and leading. The rest of us are receiving instruction, taking commands, aspiring to model, and doing as we're told. To state what is quite obvious, Jesus is the master and we are the servants. He expects us to do as we're told. This is kind of part one of what Jesus is getting at. Students and subjects do as they're told. And Jesus is telling us, his people, to serve his people and, yes, even sometimes his enemies. Okay, that's intuitive to grasp. There's something also in here. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Okay, if the teacher can wash his students' feet shouldn't they be able to wash one another's? If the sender can serve the messengers, shouldn't they be able to care for each other? If the master can consider the needs and interests of his subjects even above his own, shouldn't they be able to do likewise? Shouldn't we be able to do the same? Not only should we be able to do the same, it should be easier for us more to the point for god the son to wash our feet for him to serve us in life and death he had to condescend he had to literally humble himself his descent is from heaven to earth from lord to slave creator to creature god had to do what was beneath him for us to serve each other we don't have to condescend anywhere to serve your brothers and sisters, you don't have to look down. You only have to notice your peers. Jesus is commanding slave to help slave, sister to aid sister, brother to care for brother. For Jesus to come to our aid, he had to stoop low. For us to help each other, we don't have to stoop anywhere. We're already at the bottom. If you think that serving your brothers and sisters requires you to condescend, it's because you're thinking of yourself too highly. There's only one teacher and many students. There's only one Lord and many servants. Look again at verse 16. A servant is not greater than his master, 
What that means is if we can't serve our brothers and sisters, it's not just because we think we're greater than them. It's because we think we're greater than the master. And yet this is what makes service so difficult. Like the disciples in our hearts, we fight over who's going to be seated at the right hand of the the son in heaven. When really we're just sitting at his feet. In our hearts, we have set ourselves up to be better than our brothers and sisters. We think ourselves cleaner than them, more righteous than them, more zealous than them, more important than them, more credentialed than them, more necessary than them, more gifted than them. Our time is more valuable than theirs. Our resources go further than theirs. We are needed more than they are. It's hard to serve people when you think they have little value and you think yourself so important to the kingdom and the world. Jesus' lesson here is that if the king of the cosmos can joyfully humble himself to consider the interests and needs of his servants, we should be able to do likewise. In fact, we must do likewise. A Christian that doesn't serve and love other Christians is an oxymoron. It's someone who doesn't look like or love like or follow Jesus. When you serve with the gospel in mind, when you remember Christ's position and his passion, when you remember your own guilt and stain, when you recall that Jesus loved you and them to the very end, it should propel you to do as Christ has done for you. Brothers and sisters, there is no act of service beneath us. Verse 16, the servant is not greater than his master. Unless you can promote yourself to a higher station than God and fall lower than slave on a cross, you cannot outdo his service, and it is the model. None of us are too good for any Christian task. None of us too distinguished to serve with the children. None of us too important to give up time to help a brother or sister who is ensnared in sin. Brothers and sisters, we are all in need. We were all unclean. We all still be you, and it not lead to point two, you serving his people. Like you can't be saved from sin and not serve the saints. You can't be served by Christ and be indifferent to the needs of your brothers and sisters for whom he also died. It just doesn't make sense. When you believe in Jesus, you follow Jesus, and Jesus is telling us what he expects. Students follow their teachers, servants follow their masters, and what characterized Jesus' words and actions and mission, verse 1, it's love. Self-abasing love. The way of Jesus is the way of loving sacrifice and service. It's what he modeled, it's what he taught, it's what he empowers, it's what he expects. Brothers and sisters, is there someone who needs your help that you've been neglecting? Maybe you're the one that needs help, but you've not let your brothers and sisters in. Perhaps a bit like Peter in false humility, you've kept Christ and his people at arm's distance. Notice verse 17, we're only blessed if we do the things that we know. Knowing Jesus died for your sins will not help you if you do not let him wash you. Knowing that Jesus modeled humble sacrifice doesn't benefit you unless you follow him. It is those who do who are blessed, those who do who are eternally happy. I don't know about you, but I feel like the happiest people that I know are the most humble. They gladly give themselves in Christian service. The unhappiest people I know, the most bitter, the most easily offended, they're the most haughty. They think of themselves too highly. They forget what Jesus has done for them. Notice our text, it begins and ends with humility. In humility, we recognize our need for Christ's cleansing blood. We recognize our need for his life and his spirit. 
We recognize that not just on the day that he saved us, but every single day. And in humility, we recognize that we are not the messenger. That the gospel given to us is the one we preach. We recognize that we are not the teacher. He leads the way and we follow. We recognize that we are not Lord or master when he commands us to clean feet and to serve the saints. We thank him that he has allowed us to mirror his son on earth. Washed people wash people. Those who have been served by God on high ought to serve their brothers and sisters down low. Jesus is showing us this is what it means to be his disciple. This is the way of Christ. Blessed are you not only if you know it, but if you do it. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your staggering love toward us. Such a love that would send your son to earth as a man, further still to wash our feet, to stoop lower still to die upon the cross for our sins. We marvel that for those of us who believed in Jesus, we have been made perfectly clean not on account of our works, but simply on account of his. God, we pray that if there are any non-Christians here, that you would open up their eyes so that they could see your love for them in the gospel. That they would see that they are stained by sin, but that they can be made new in Christ. We pray that they would trust in him this very day. And God, we pray for all of us, for the saints here at NBC in particular, that this would not be simply something we know, but something we do, and we would be blessed by it. Would our love for Jesus be displayed in our love for one another? We marvel at your kindness to us. Let us not take the gospel for granted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.